0: What's up everybody and welcome back to another episode of Locations Unknown. I'm your co-host Joe Irado, and with me as always is a guy who asks how you're doing and genuinely cares about the <laughs> answer, Mike
1: Uh Thanks Joe and thank you once again to all of our amazing listeners for tuning in. Uh, we've got a really exciting episode uh, today but before we get to that just a couple quick announcements. I uh, got a lot of new Patreon supporters to shout out so I'm going to get to that right now. Thank you to Ashley Payne, Lauren Downing, David Bosquette, Aaron Boggs, Kelly Clayton, Ashley Blessing, Kelly uh, Mobley, Alex Steller, Jessica Knight, Rodney Kelly, Jake Freeman, Mason Walbrook, Glenn Spaulding, and Michelle Camisa.
0: That was a lot of new patrons. <laughs> yeah.
1: So thank you, uh, thank you so much yeah, uh, for thanks. supporting the show. Um, it means a lot to us, and your support directly affects how – uh, we produced the show. You'll, you'll notice this episode, we're actually live uh, together in a room. We've got some new podcasting equipment. Uh, later this week, we'll probably be posting a video of this episode, live if it, video. If it records right. So if we're,
0: it, we're looking at it, but I don't know are. if it's going to work. <laughs> uh,
1: so thank you once again. Uh, this is all, as we've been saying, is leading up to eventually doing live video shows, uh, similar to something that like a Joe Rogan would do. Um, so thank you. Um, Following this episode, we're also doing a uh, live Patreon supporter Zoom call. So, uh, if you want to get in on things like that or bonus episodes and uh, a lot of swag giveaways, head over to our Patreon page. And for as little as a dollar a month, you can uh, help support the show. And finally, uh, we recently released a Patreon only episode kind of to give you an idea of what we talk about. In Those episodes sometimes we cover new cases, sometimes it might be why we got
0: all those new supporters. <laughs> maybe. And they heard uh, that banter and didn't run away, they ran to it,
1: yeah. So, uh, check that episode out if you're int- you're curious what, um, you know, the Patreon episodes might in- contain. They really are a mix of everything. Sometimes it's just Joe and me talking, uh, you know, about hiking trips and stuff. So, uh, any updates from your
0: end, Joe? No, that, that's about it cool. All right, everybody, let's gear up and get out to explore Locations Unknown. It was the summer of 1988. A novelist had moved to Silver Plume, Colorado to work on his book and became obsessed with the story of a man who disappeared there a year earlier. He decided to write his book about the disappearance. On August 7th, he started to climb Mount Pendleton to help with writer's block. Our writer was never seen again. Join us this week as we investigate the disappearance of Keith Reinhardt. So Pendleton Mountain is in the Arapaho National Forest area in Colorado. It was established in 1908 by Theodore Roosevelt, and among how many parks did he do like a lot of most them? Most of them, pretty much.
1: Yeah, he uh, he's like one of our favorite presidents, and uh, he established a ton of parks national forests um really is the father of the national park system
0: yep that's 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 why i like him yeah and he's crazy which was great too we've (laughs) talked about this in other episodes yeah so the park is 2,928 square kilometers so it's slightly larger than the state of delaware so it's a big well it's a forest yeah national forest i keep saying park yeah whatever (laughs) so (laughs) pendleton mountain checks in at 12,902 feet but there are several other 12,000 foot mountains in the forest, including Grays Peak, Mount Evans, Bard Peak, and Pettingle Peak, uh, just to name a few. So the name Arapaho is derived from the Arapaho Native Americans that inhibited, uh, inhabited the plains of Colorado and Wyoming. As of 2010, the Arapaho tribe had a population of 10,861. So Arapaho can trace their ancestors back over 3,000 years where they lived, uh, where they Lived in present-day Manitoba, Canada, and Minnesota, so they're more northern region. Mm-hmm. Sometime before the 1700s, the Arapaho moved into the west, uh, western Great Lakes and Great Plains. So, Rocky Mountain is one of the nation's highest national parks, with elevations from 7,860 feet to 14,259
1: feet. So, I we're I know we're talking about the Arapaho National Forest, but. Some of the facts here are from Rocky Mountain National Park just because it's just north of Arapahoe National Forest.
0: Okay, so it's just like the same area.
1: So a lot of the same terrain and weather and everything you experience in Rocky Mountain National Park you would experience in the forest.
0: All right, perfect. Uh, let's see. The Rocky Mountain has an extensive museum collection. Rocky Mountain's museum collection preserves artifacts and specimens that tell the story of the park. In total, the collection includes 33,400 cultural objects. 294 works of art, and 10,495 biological specimens, and 455 geological specimens. And I know, um, is it Aspen, where they have like a big dinosaur exhibit? Because they're like constantly finding a ton of fossils and stuff. Yeah, I don't every, know. But Every uh, time they want to develop, they keep finding more stuff. And This w- museum
1: sounds really cool. If I'm ever in the area, I'm definitely going to go to it.
0: Yeah, there's a couple. In each little town, they typically <clears throat> have some sort of thing around mm-hmm. geological stuff that they're doing. So the Rocky Mountain Divide and North American continent rivers on the west side of the Rocky Mountains flow to the Pacific Ocean while the rivers on the east side flow into the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, the Rocky Mountains are 80 million to 55 million years old. So,
1: Yeah, it's interesting about the rivers. I don't think a lot of people realize the Continental Divide is named that because it's literally the, the center point of the continent. And it's interesting to think that the water, if you're standing on that line, water flows both directions. So so.
0: going off that theme, (laughs) I read, I read a Reddit story of a guy who wanted to climb. There's a mountain that the peak where like the west side is on that side, east side's on that side and the south side goes there. And he's like, I'm going to climb that and do my business so that my urine (laughs) will go and I can pee. He said he wants to pee in three oceans at once. Oh boy. So (laughs) I kind of want to do that too. It's such a guy thing. Yeah. So the climate, uh, just being in mountainous, uh, and if you're from Colorado, you already know this, it's alpine climate. So you get warmer weather in the valleys, cold at elevation, even during the summer. And that's where, uh, when I climbed uh, Keyhole Mm -hmm. at, uh, I forgot what peak it's called forgot. I was in Boulder field, but there was some guy that started hiking at the base we camped in Boulder field. Yeah. And by the time he made it up, he said it was like seventies in the parking lot and we had a blizzard up top. So it it can range wildly. Yeah.
1: Even, and it does, isn't just Colorado. It's kind of the whole Rockies. I experienced that when I was hiking in the Canadian Rockies, it was sunny and warm down in the Valley. And as we went up to elevation, it got, it got colder, rained, and then eventually ended with snow. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, you experience all four seasons. When yeah, you're there.
1: and we had lightning that trip too. So, we literally experienced every form of weather in <laughs> the same area
0: over the week, <laughs> except monsoon. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> thank God. So, uh, we'll jump to exposure. So, the extreme risk of exposure starting at 9,000 feet that's where you start losing trees and other things at in that specific spot. Uh, it differs in different mountain areas. Sometimes it's 10, 11,000 feet, sometimes it's, it's lower. Uh, even in summer, as we said, it can get very cold at elevation at the time of this recording current forecast at 12,000 feet was in the low forties to mid fifties and the lows in the upper twenties. So that's at night. So it's it's cold up there.
1: Yeah. I added that into the research just because, um, it's really interesting. You know, it's June, it's the West coast is going through a tremendous uh, heat wave and, you know, it's usually warm and humid, but at elevation, I mean, it's it's in the upper 20s still right now, and they had rain and snow and lightning in the forecast for the next 12 <laughs> days. So, if you're hiking in an alpine climate, uh, these are all things you definitely, anyone who goes hiking in the mountains, checks the weather uh, every, you know, probably every day if they're doing day hikes or if you're leaving for a multi-hike, multi-day hike, you're going to check the long-range forecast for the next week because. Um, you need to know what you're going to experience. <laughs>
0: yeah, I've been stuck in lightning storms at altitude, and it's just, it's bad. I know we, we like, huddled it under a big boulder because you're the highest object. If you're near a peak, that it will hit the peak, but other than that, yeah, and it's a, dangerous.
1: A, just a, a, a quick thing, too, about the elevations, and these kind of things change um, depending on where you are in the country or world based on moisture levels, but, you know, in the Rockies in this area, in the 5,000-foot range, you're going to have, you know, short grass, prairies. Um, from 6,000 to 9,000 feet, you're going to have montane environment, which I actually had to look this up because I've never heard that term before. So montane is the growth zone of relatively cool upland slopes below the timber line, and it's usually dominated by large, uh, you know, like large pine trees that you see. Oh, okay. And then, you know, from your 9,000 to 11,200 feet, that's your subalpine. So starting about 9,000 feet in this park you're not going to have any shelter from exposure and a, you know subalpine there's still shrubs and stuff growing sure. but once you hit 11,000 feet you're in the alpine tundra zone and that is where pretty much nothing is growing so
0: yeah you're it in a lightning storm you're 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 it <laughs>
1: yeah I mean if you hear if you're hiking up a mountain and you hear lightning even off in the distance turn around
0: yeah, it's not worth it. That's why, that's why you go early in the morning too. Most storms hit mountains in the afternoon.
1: Yeah, you definitely do not want to get stuck on a 12,000-foot peak in a lightning storm because you now are the tallest object on that mountain, even if you're you know, in the fetal position.
0: <laughs> so I can't confirm this, but I've always heard that lightning is the thing that kills people the most in the mountains. I've always heard that that's the, fa- like, people always worry about falling or injury like that. It's usually if you're up there stuck in a storm, that's, like, the most dangerous. Outside of getting wet and hypothermia and all those other things, it's it's being struck by lightning at altitude because you, you're just I think
1: not- I think the danger with lightning is it's the, the thing that you can't prepare for. It's not like you can bring clothing that'll protect you from lightning. I mean, you know, if it's really cold, you bring warm weather. You know, if it's rainy, you bring rain gear. But lightning... Nothing is going to protect you. There's no shelter. Oh, you have
0: a full metal suit. It was, that was yeah. a Mythbusters. Though. Oh, really? um, <laughs> yes, it was. They talked about knights. If a knight with all the armor on, yeah. lightning doesn't penetrate it. It goes on the outside. So if you're wearing a full metal suit, grounded, you'll be fine. That's funny. So you can lug a 200-pound metal chainmail suit up there, and you'll be just fine. <laughs> All right. So moving on um, at almost 13,000 feet is where altitude sickness be- can become a really uh, big issue. So especially for anyone who isn't acclimated or out of shape. So if you come uh, from out of state or something like that, you have to get used to the altitude first before you start going in there. So according to the Cleveland Clinic, over 75% of people over 10,000 feet will experience some form of AMS or acute mountain sickness. This is altitude sickness.
1: Yeah, this is um, an interesting stat that I I found when I was researching this episode, because we always talk about altitude sickness, but I've experienced it. um, Probably everyone that's hiked in the mountains has experienced... In some mild Mild forms of it. and. It usually goes away after a few days, but um, as Joe will say here in a few minutes, you know, as he goes on here, it can get serious where you have to turn back.
0: Yeah, we had a guy uh, when we were doing Kilimanjaro; he died on the summit from acute mountain sickness. He was an older gentleman, but it was clear he wasn't fully acclimated, and he just went downhill real fast. And the only way to combat it besides some over the counter painkillers and stuff is to just dealtitude, go down. As yeah, fast the problem as you can.
1: the problem you get if you have severe symptoms is edema and yep. that's basically lungs in your, your or fluid in your lungs or your brain. And the only way to cure that, you're it's a race against time and you gotta get below four thousand feet and then to a hospital immediately, yep. or you will die from that.
0: Yep. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's it's rare, but it, it can happen, and you just got to be aware of the, the signs and symptoms.
1: Yeah, watch any of those shows on the Discovery Channel about the people that hike Mount Everest. It happens every year yeah. on Everest. Yeah, because so. they're at extreme altitudes. <laughs> yeah.
0: So difficulty in general, uh, same as we said in other episodes, anytime you're in a mountain summit that goes above 8,000 feet, the level of difficulty just increases. Even if there's no climbing, it's just the physical attributes of being at altitude. So mm-hmm. you, lack of shelter. Uh, if you don't have the right stuff to clean your water, because staying hydrated is absolutely key in the mm-hmm. mountains. Uh, when it's cold, sometimes people don't feel like they're thirsty. It's you got to drink water. That's yeah. like the best thing you can do. Um, and, uh, many of the summits do include some sort of technical hiking. So it's like narrow paths, loose rock, uh, poorly marked trails. So you can get lost.
1: I, uh, I, I coined the phrase. I didn't coin it, but I they call it the, I call it the final mile.
0: <laughs> Cause it's like five miles. If yeah, it's, it's like
1: five miles and it's always the most hairy of, you know, of the, the trail up. I, at least in my experience, I've always experienced the really narrow paths where you're looking down at like a thousand foot drop yeah. or, <laughs> or you're on like some really loose scree that if you lose your footing, you're just going to go rolling over the mountain. So like
0: angels landing, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> hang out on the side of chains and.
1: Yeah, and the trails aren't really marked well at that point. You'll see maybe, like, a little disturbed ground from where people have walked, but there's not going to be, like, a sign with an arrow pointing, like, Summit. I mean, at that elevation.
0: Yeah, usually (laughs) it's uh, Cairns, and, like, not the kind that people leave in rivers that are annoying, the kind that are used to actually mark mountain trails because there's no grass that you can beat down. So you'll see big rock Cairns form so people can find their way.
1: And one of the issues, too, is crowding of the trails. Um, I've experienced this in Hawaii on a – the Kalalau Trail, um, we were going to do Half Dome, but we didn't have the amount of been in time to do it. And Half Dome has uh, the chains that go up, and that gets super crowded. Yeah,
0: people have died on there just slipping off the chains.
1: Slipping, being caught up there in a lightning storm. Uh, so that's why whenever we hike, we usually get up before you know, morning Yeah, and start hiking in the dark because... Uh, the the quicker you can get out there on the trail, the you're going to avoid a lot of the crowd.
0: Yeah, before tourist time. <laughs> yeah, so uh, that that pretty much sums up park any type of risk category. So, uh, Mike, you're going to talk about Keith, and let's let's figure out what's up with that guy.
1: Yeah. So the uh, subject of this episode is Keith Reinhard. He's a male. Uh, date of birth was September <laughs> 10th, 1938. Uh, he was 48 at the time of his disappearance. He was six foot two, 210 pounds. So you know, at that height, you know, pretty average weight, uh, for someone that high uh, height, uh, you know, he had gray hair, blue eyes. Uh, the last clothing he was seen in was a blue jeans and flannel t-shirt. And I mentioned this every time I hear about someone wearing jeans, never go hiking in blue jeans. It's like never the worst do it. Clo-
0: it's like the worst article of clothing. Don't
1: do it. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> I won't get, we won't go into all the reasons why you shouldn't do it. Just don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so his occupation, he was a sports reporter out of Chicago at the time and this is the 80s obviously. And um he experienced in the wilderness. So I'm basing this on the fact that he he didn't he went hiking this mountain with no gear and whenever I hear of someone doing that, I immediately think that they're inexperienced.
0: Yeah, it's 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 not something you take lightly. I think, you know It can be a mix. Yeah. People who've been doing it forever can sometimes, they'll have issues where they think they, they oh, I've done a hundred mountains. I'm just going to do this one quick. And I, a lot of them probably get away with it. Here's the deal. A lot of them probably do that and are just fine. But it's only that one time that you run into something, you don't have the right equipment or right gear, and then you're, you're toast. You're done.
1: Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, I, I would think the more you do it, the more you you cautious you get about what you're going to experience you're going to bring you know i sometimes run into the the problem of overpacking
0: <laughs> i always overpack and
1: uh <laughs> yeah that's just based on the fact that i've ex- we've experienced so many different situations hiking that now i'm thinking about well what if this happens what if this happens uh, you know so you can also overpack you don't want to have a 50 pound pack where you're going up Summoning him out, either. <laughs> so it hurts the knees. Yeah. So, you know, that is kind of the basic information about Keith. So I'm going to jump right into the timeline. And now this is a very interesting uh, story because it, it actually involves two people that went missing. So uh, the, sto- the, the case starts in Silver Plume, Colorado, very small town of 200 people. Uh, it's September 7th, 1987. Uh, Tom Young. Uh, was a gentleman who owned a bookstore in this town and right on the main street of the town. And he decided to go hiking um, the same mountain that Keith hiked on and he took his dog and disappeared. No one had ever seen him again. So now fast forward to, and we'll get into what happened to Tom in a second. So now fast forward to the summer of 1988. So Keith is now 48 years old and he's telling everyone in Chicago that he wants to go on this three month sabbatical to kind of clear his head. He was saying that he was getting, you know, kind of getting overweight. He wanted to write a novel. And so he left his job and he had a friend that lived out in Colorado. Um, I believe his name is Ted, who owned a business and has always been kind of filling his head with, oh, you know, it's a pretty sleepy little town out here. It's, more relaxed, low key, things move slower, which sounds appealing, especially, it sounds, it sounds very appealing, especially if you live in a big city like Chicago, so, you know, everyone could probably use a, a recharge like, like that, so, um, so he moves to Silver Plume, and he opens up a little antique store in the same shop that Tom Young had his bookstore in, so, um, little bit of a, Weird coincidence. I guess maybe it isn't because it's such a small town. It's probably the only
0: uh, (laughs) the only retail location available. Yeah.
1: So, um, like we said, his friend Ted Parker already lived there, and Ted owned KP Cafe, and you know would constantly fill his head with ideas of a slower life and quieter life. So this appealed to Reinhard. So he informed Carolyn, his wife, that he wanted to spend some time in Silver Plume alone and work on his novel. So. He goes there, he opened an antique store across the street from Ted's business and planned to permanently relocate himself and his wife to Silver Plume if the business, uh, you know, became a success. Unfortunately, you know, Keith was beset with problems from the beginning. First of all, probably starting a business in such a small town, uh, you know, you're, you're gonna, your chance of failure is a much higher when there's only 200 people in the town and it's not like this was a big tourist destination. So, uh, you even know even
0: if his capture rate's fifty percent a month, yeah. that's not a lot of customers.
1: Yeah, so you know the shop wasn't doing uh, much business, and on top of that, you know, Keith started getting writer's block, and um, his inspiration to finish this novel started to wane. So, uh, like we said, June nineteen eighty eight is when Keith opened this shop, and soon after opening the antique store, he uh, he soon learned that the previous owner was Tom Young, who owned a bookstore who had vanished one year earlier. (laughs) So uh, when Keith heard about this, uh, he became obsessed with Tom's disappearance. Uh, So he actually decided to base his novel on Tom Young. And in the novel, he called the main character Guy Gypsum, (laughs) which was a composite of himself and Tom. So
0: the, that's like really eerie. Yeah, I mean, going on the book thing, that's like foreshadowing. Like, yeah, like, but uh, so so he had no idea what book he wanted to write. He moved to the small town and be like, I want to be inspired. I want to. Yep. All right. So he's like a true novelist.
1: Yeah, and from every all the research I did, and I I read a ton on Keith. He really did become obsessed with Tom's disappearance. Like it, it kind of took over his thought process, and uh, it's kind of all he thought about while he was out there after he learned of that. So. It gets stranger.
0: (laughs) Well, if you think about it, that's like the biggest news that towns probably had ever besides like it was founded Mm -hmm. and then a guy went missing and they didn't recover him. So yeah, when when you're around 200 people and have nothing to do, you sit around the shop and everyone probably talked about this Tom guy who went who went missing.
1: Yeah. So now it's uh, July 31st of 1988 and there were some local hunters uh, patrolling the mountain wilderness, approximately an hour walk from silver plume when they found a skeleton propped up against a tree, uh, not far away was a backpack, a pistol, and a ske- the skeletal remains of a dog. Uh, so Dave uh, Downhower of the Creek County, uh, Clear Creek County Sheriff's Department, was one of the first investigators to arrive on the scene and said the following: They were up there exploring some territory for the bow hunting season, which was coming up, and they found his remains. Uh, also found at the scene was a revolver. In subsequent investigations we found out uh, that tom had purchased a gun approximately four days before he was last known to be in silver plume Uh, as far as the authorities were concerned the tom young case is closed and is being ruled a suicide both by the coroner's office and the clear creek county sheriff's department so they had also both found um the skeletal remains of the person the dog had one uh, shot to the head so. Right, so I
0: think he went up there, shot his dog, shot himself, sitting against a tree, and yeah, that's exactly. All she wrote,
1: <clears throat> but this didn't sit well with the locals in Silver Plume. So obviously, two hundred person town, everyone probably knows everybody. I'm very sure well. they
0: all had an opinion on what really happened.
1: Yeah, and people were not convinced that it was a suicide because they said Young, you know, treasured his dog. It was his dog was like a you know a family member and beloved by. Uh, Tom and they said he would never have killed his own dog he would have left it with somebody else or at a shelter he would he would never have killed it
0: yeah don't people who actually commit suicide they typically give away their belongings Mm -hmm. like they're like typically obviously there's there's Things that are outliers to that, but they'll give away the things they care about most. And if he actually loved his dog, yeah, you wouldn't want to kill the dog too. So I could I could see <clears throat> where that mindset is.
1: Yeah. So you know, a lot of the people in town were very convinced that something else happened to Tom. So let's fast forward to August seventh of nineteen eighty eight. So now you know Keith, especially now after they have found the body of Tom and his dog, uh, Keith started telling you know residents of the town that he wanted to you know, climb Pendleton mountain. Um, it, but most people weren't taking him serious. I think he wanted to, a lot of people said he was, he was kind of trying to morph into Tom to kind of like, he, wa- he was like investigating the case. He was like kind of trying to become Tom.
0: Okay. <laughs> like get inside of his head and get inside of his actions and then. Yeah. So write the book.
1: some people speculated that he wanted to, to climb this mountain in the same area that Tom would have done to try to help write his book. But none of the people in town took him serious, really. Uh, Heath's friend, Ted Parker, said the following. He was in the cafe and told me he was going to uh, make it to the top of the mountain. If I don't come back, call the rescue, uh, call the rescue team. And he said that in jest. Um, I have this picture of him uh, pointing to the mountain and saying goodbye. And that was the last time I saw him. So, uh, you know, from what I read, this, this mountain is not something that um, – you know, it's, it's a little harder of a hike than just, you know, an average person who has no Alpine hiking experience.
0: Yeah. I was looking at some of the images. It's, it's not an easy one.
1: No. And it's, you know, it's not in a major park, so it's not going to be trafficked a lot, at least at this time. And this actually wasn't even his first attempt. Friends recalled that his previous attempt ended when he showed signs of vertigo. So he already tried to do this once and had experienced uh, altitude sickness and, uh, so, you know, and he, you know, he, you could tell you he, he was a little out of shape, too. So that may have factored into it a bit. So around 430 in the afternoon that day, Keith was last seen walking towards uh, Pendleton Mountain uh, and far too late in the day to begin yeah, a difficult t- six hour hike. That's just one way. So
0: six hours, one way. Yeah. And he's starting at four,
1: 430 in the oh, afternoon. That's terrible. That's, yeah.
0: that's like the worst decision ever. Right. Right out of the gate.
1: So um, it, that may have been there and back. I'm not. sure on that, but either way, um, Joe and I never hike once it's dark out, especially in, you know, at at noon.
0: Yeah. I I mean, that's, you want to be on summit around noon or earlier and start heading back. Yeah. Like that's the general rule of thumb. It can differ, but typically If I can't make it from the ground to summit by noon, I'm going to find a camp along the way where you can camp, spend the night, wake up early the next morning and then summit that next day.
1: Yeah. And you always want to add in a few, you know, an hour or two for unexpected issues. So maybe you're just not feeling it that day.
0: Always come up.
1: Yeah. And you're just going slower. I mean, some days, you know, maybe you're dehydrated and you're walk, you hiking slower. So, um, you know, he set a deadline of 10 PM for his return. And, uh, residents of Silver Plume said they saw him walking to the mountain with no supplies. So a um, couple big mistakes here he's making. He's going unprepared. He's like Joe said, leaving at four 30 in the afternoon um, at this time of the year, sunset and Silver Plume is about 8 PM. So, you know, he's going to be have several hours of Alpine mountain hiking in the dark, which by himself and No supplies, so I'm assuming he doesn't have a headlamp or flashlight. So he's literally going to be hiking in the dark, which is uh, extremely dangerous. And uh, even the most experienced backcountry hikers will not do that. Um, I mean, if you have headlamps and you absolutely have to get down the mountain at night, obviously Mm -hmm. you do that. But it's like Joe said, whenever we hike, we always if we know we can't get to the top and back in one day, you find a campsite or you backcountry camp and just, you know, you break it into two days. Uh, yeah. It's not worth dying over. <laughs> no, absolutely. Um, so here's some of the issues that some of the people in town said he probably faced because of his decision to start the mountain hike this late. Um, like we said, the sunset was at 8 p.m. And uh, the the elevation is over 12,000 feet of, on Pendleton Mountain. And he already has a history of altitude sickness. So there's a good chance that He's going to experience that again, especially since it doesn't sound like he had any water with him or food or any kind of painkillers to ease the symptoms. And there are, there are wild, you know, there is some wildlife you got to you know, keep track of in this area. There's mountain lions, bears. Um, I also read there's moose in the Arapaho National Forest. And honestly, after being in Alaska... I would say probably moose are
0: (laughs) his biggest threat. (laughs) Yeah, moose are scary. I've been chased by a bull moose before. It's not fun. Yeah, it it, it chased
1: (laughs) you. uh, You were kayaking, and it it got into the water and swam after you. (laughs) Yeah,
0: well, so I'll tell a story quick. So I was with Jack. You're in the Boundary Waters in Minnesota, and most of it is kayaking. You're going lake to lake, and you have to portage to get your stuff over. So we were trying to find the portage. It was overgrown. We were going pretty deep up there. So he pulled up. I jumped out in some low water, and he backed the canoe out while I was just going along shore. And moose graze underwater. Yeah. So we didn't even see this thing. All of a sudden, it pops up out of the water. It's, <laughs> it's, it's far off. It's like 50 yards off. Yeah. And starts running around, and it's like taking trees out and running. And I <laughs> ran and Jack was paddling back, and I jumped from shore and landed in the canoe. I don't know how far I jumped, but Jack said it was a ridiculous distance that he didn't think I would be able to jump, so it was, like, all adrenaline. Yeah. And it just stared at us, and we just rode away as fast as we could because it's they're, yeah. they're terrifying. If
1: no one has ever seen a moose in person, they are massive. They have poor eyesight, and if it's mating season, the, uh, the bulls are very aggressive, and uh, they – I, I, when I did my Alaska trip, I was researching uh, moose, and moose are actually the biggest threat to people and have caused the most injury and death in Alaska over grizzlies yeah. because there's just so many of them, and uh, they're unpredictable, especially during mating season. So, And people don't understand that. I saw several people in Alaska getting incredible. There was a, a, a cow. I think that's what the female version's called. Yeah, right? I don't know. Sure. Yeah, there was a female moose <laughs> with one of her babies on off the side of a trail, and people are just standing there twenty mm. feet from it taking pictures. And we were on bikes and we we just kept riding. We we're like, that is incredible. It's dangerous. the same thing
0: as a mom bear with the babies. <laughs> yeah. Like they're gonna protect the baby. So like you need to back off.
1: Yeah. So uh that's our little side sidebar there. Yeah. So <laughs> um so obviously, like we said, Keith hiked started hiking late in the day to summit this mountain, and that was the last time anyone would see him. So on August 8th of 1988, a massive search and rescue operation kicked off. Um, some people have said at the time this might have been the largest search and rescue operation in Colorado's history. I'm sure there has since been larger. Yeah. Um, but, you know, helicopters began searching for him. Uh, on the ground they had more than 125 people, dozens of trained dogs combined, Um, or combed the pretty difficult terrain. Um, So here's a quote from uh, Charlie uh, Shemansky, who headed the Alpine rescue team. Uh, He said, The Reinhardt search was like looking for the proverbial needle in a haystack. This haystack is 3,000 vertical feet of 60-degree slope. This was about as difficult a search terrain as we cover we were at a real disadvantage because Keith went into the mountains wearing no, no more than blue jeans and a flannel shirt and tennis shoes. Also, don't ever wear tennis shoes hiking. Get a proper set of hiking boots when you go hiking.
0: Ankle support, <laughs> protection, all the, yeah. Yeah. Ugh. And <laughs> the
1: nice thing with hiking boots is they're usually waterproof. Yeah. <laughs> so if you go into water, your feet won't be soaked. Uh, <laughs> so he goes on to say he had no backpack, he had no equipment, a typical subject of a search will leave a lot leave lots of clues for us to trace trace. Heath didn't leave many clues, he didn't have uh many with him to leave behind. So that's a really interesting factor uh that just makes it incredibly harder to find him. He had nothing with him. I mean, yeah. Yeah, like we always say, usually they look for like a a backpack or a tent or you know, a hiking stick or anything that they might have had. So Keith had nothing. Yep. Um so His friends also helped with the search. They searched his business and found a newspaper next to his computer mentioning the discovery of Tom's remains. So like I said, Keith had become obsessed with the disappearance of Tom Young. And they also uh, searched his computer and they found the following words. Guy Gypsum changed into some hiking boots and donned a heavy flannel shirt. So this goes back into me saying that he was kind of becoming Tom Young. So, (laughs) um, yeah, just an he interesting... Should, should
0: have actually done the hiking boots part. Yeah. But...
1: Yep. So on uh, August 15th, 1988, and this is an approximate, uh, it was about seven days after the search started, authorities called off the search. Uh, like I said, it, it led to one of the biggest searches in Colorado history uh, on, the, uh, on the ground and in the air. And it this, Joe, we've seen this happen in other searches. Um uh, they called off the search after a Cessna helping with the search crashed, killing one of the passengers. So, this has got to be the fourth or fifth case we've covered where one of the search aircraft have gone down. Yeah, and I know some people will bring up conspiracy theories and you know kind of go to the paranormal route. I, I we're not going to go to that route with this, but it's just strange that these searches that when they don't find anyone, that also they have issues with the. Aircraft going down.
0: Yeah, I would love to talk to a guy who flies in the mountains a lot because I feel like those Cessnas, they're flying low. Mm -hmm. If you get, like, weird drafts off the mountains and stuff, could probably, like, drop your altitude quicker than you can recover. I don't know. Well, we talked about... um, You you know more about planes than I do. I don't know. I don't know anything about them. Yeah, and we should get
1: my dad on the podcast. (laughs) Um, But we talked about in that episode about the Nevada Triangle with Steve Fawcett that when you get close to mountains, it can create um, these kind of, like vertical I don't know what you what we called it. They're kind of like circular waves of air and it can cause a plane to lose altitude very quickly. Okay. Or to stall out if they're trying to climb. So uh and like we said, weather in the mountains is super unpredictable. So if these people aren't experienced in mountain I'm assuming if they're participating in a search in the Rockies that they're experienced Flying around in the Rockies
0: yeah, but again, if you're low in one of those hits and you lose lift yeah it, it, if you're too low I mean no Steve recovery. Fawcett
1: was a very experienced pilot and yeah. that was one of the theories that happened to him so um, as of uh, so now this is as of 2018 so the Clear, Co- Clear Creek County Sheriff's Office still has an open case on uh, Keith. Lieutenant Steve Gramillion of the Clear Creek Sheriff's Office told CBS four. There's too many possibilities and not enough evidence to determine what happened. So um, they go on to say in 30 years of operation, the Colorado Alpine rescue teams have found every single person they've searched for. However, they discovered no trace of Keith. Some have concluded that Keith Reinhardt and Tom Young were murdered, noting that both men rented the same space to run their shops. And perhaps they both came across information. Someone didn't want them to know. So (laughs) with that little nugget, I think we'll start going into theories and like I always do, yep. since I blathered on for 20 minutes there, I'll start with Joe. What What do you, before you look at the actual theories I put down, what do you think happened?
0: <laughs> so I didn't think murder. Yeah. Um. I keep going back and forth on that because it's a small town. Yep. Like what, what would you stumble across in Plume, Colorado, unless it was an old mining town. So I don't know Whereas like. There's some environmental thing from some large company that they're yeah. covering up. I don't know. He wasn't even investigating that. He was just following some other guy, mm-hmm. uh, and
1: and he didn't even find the body. Yeah, the hunters did.
0: Yeah. So I mean, there's there's also now if I'm going to play devil's advocate in my own doubts here, if Tom stumbled upon something and got mm-hmm. killed for it, and they stage it like like a like a suicide. Yeah. And what makes it off is he wouldn't kill his dog or assume, assumed it wouldn't kill his dog. Mm-hmm. Uh, if someone's investigating that story and happens to stumble across the same thing so he wasn't trying to find something that Tom found but ended up in the same situation. Yeah. Okay, that that makes sense, I guess. Uh it's only a year later, so it's still fresh. Yeah. Um I don't know. I I would say more likely What what did one of our patron supporters say? It was a uh, feral people. Oh, the feral people, <laughs> the feral, yes. Pe- maybe it's feral people. It could be the feral people. <laughs> no, um, I'd say more. The more likely scenario is unprepared, starting late. Yeah, succumb to the elements. That's I think that's not as fun as the other ones. And I guess fun's the wrong word to use. But like as as far as theories go, it's not the exciting one. Yeah, uh, I just think that's the more relevant one just completely unprepared, no stuff, maybe got hypothermia, couldn't hike out and succumb mm-hmm. to the elements. And maybe during hypothermia, you can go through uh, an issue where if you have altitude sickness, you're cold, you're not thinking properly. Mm-hmm. Maybe you wandered off somewhere. It's an old mining town. He could have gone into a cave to try and maybe get shelter, Yeah, succumb to the elements, and that's why they can't find him. He's in some cave or crevasse somewhere. And maybe in the next 50 years, somebody will stumble across it. I don't know. But that, that's the most likely uh, scenario in my, in my mind.
1: So without reading through the theories of law enforcement and townspeople, I would agree that I think the most likely scenario is uh, the easiest one to connect the dots on is he went hiking in an alpine environment at altitude late in the day. Fair, pretty inexperienced in the location and with hiking and had no gear with him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like I said earlier, that, you know, at night it can get down into the 20s. Even in June, in August, it's probably a little warmer up there. You're probably not going to have 20s and 30s. It's probably 40s or 50s at that time of the year. But um, the fact that he was hiking up there late, maybe he made it to the summit and then something happened once it got dark. I've hiked so many different trails where I don't, I could never do the, it at dark.
0: Oh yeah. Like you get lost in daylight,
1: you get lost, you'll fall. I mean, one of the biggest things I always say is you got to be very sure of your footing, the higher up you go, because the trails get you know crappier and narrower. And every step you got it, you got to know exactly where your feet are going because you know, you could slip and you're, you're down a thousand feet. <laughs> yep. yeah, absolutely. And so I think that is the most logical explanation. Um, I'm going to go into some of the theories and, I bet you might change your mind okay. once you hear some of these. Right. I, yeah, I, I don't I, know if you read through them yet. I did not just okay. because
0: I wanted to come at this raw. So so laid on me.
1: Um, obviously, law enforcement, as of 2018, still had the case open. So they don't really have an official theory of what happened to them. Um, but they do have, they, at the time, they had some people in question that they could never find. So the night before he vanished... Uh, Keith attended a party where he was talking to a woman named uh, Greta or Gretchen, who was from Denver, and police believe that she may have information on his disappearance, but as of yet, the authorities haven't been able to, they weren't able to find her um, and determine what truly happened. So we have somebody that he was talking to that knows what he was going to do. And And that's
0: a small town, so like by now, that person who was talking to him should have seen it and been like, oh, I was that person. Yeah, like that's really random. A very well, the, small town to be there to talking to that guy about what he was doing. That was one of
1: the theories too. They said that a town of that that small, uh, somebody knows something. If there was foul play, if it truly okay. he just fell, they may not know. Mm-hmm. If there was foul play, somebody in that town knows what's going on. Um, so, like I said, the police don't really have an official theory. I think probably if you were to pressure them on it, they would say. Uh, You know, exposure, lack of preparation and gear caused his death. Uh, Family and friends have very different uh, theories. So family, friends, and residents of Silver Plume think neither he nor Tom committed suicide and that they were victims of foul play. Uh, First of all, they say the ballistics could never prove that the gun next to Tom was the one that killed him. So they were never able to prove that gun actually was the one that shot him and his dog
0: could they not find the bullet or they just yeah for whatever
1: reason they couldn't link it they couldn't link it so i mean we're talking skeletal remains so i don't know how sophisticated in the 80s they were to be able to check ballistics but you would think if if tom had committed suicide you would see a shell casing right nearby within five feet of him.
0: Yeah, and we'll we'll throw up the images. That's why I like doing the videos. I got images of the gun and everything like that. Yeah, put up there so you can see it. But
1: so that is a very interesting, interesting fact because um, there would be two shell casings there somewhere, especially from the shot that he theoretically uh, took himself, and they weren't able to find you know the shell casings and uh, you know weren't able to actually tie the gun to to uh, him. And the other strange fact that we already mentioned was they both rented the same building, so... Uh,
0: uh, were they not paying rent? Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't know.
1: Tony Soprano was their uh, yeah. landlord. No, so, I mean, if you want to go the paranormal route, is there something going on with that building? Should, like, the TV show Ghost Hunters go check it out? Yeah. I don't even know if it's still there at this point. Um, but I, I'm not going to go the paranormal route. I think it's just a coincidence that... It's a super small town. It was probably the only commercial space available. Yeah.
0: (laughs) I mean... I I would agree with you on that one. It's um, probably one main street where all the buildings are, and that's the one that happened to be open. But I do...
1: The foul play scenario is a, a strong second for me just because of the fact that the ballistics couldn't... They couldn't match the ballistics on, you know, Tom and his gun, and that Keith, like almost a year to the day, Tom went missing, also went missing in the same area. That just seems odd to me, like that, you know, my spidey sense goes up when I, well, I hear he, that.
0: And here's the deal. <laughs> I'm with you. I think that would be my second guess if it's not going to be just just elemental. But even if they could match the ballistics, it doesn't necessarily matter because if it's his gun and they match the ballistics, they could use it. If, if I true. were going to do that, I would stage it like a suicide. Mm-hmm. And I would, you know... Do the dog head that guy head and then leave the gun there? Wipe my prints off. Put his hand on it. Yeah. Um. I'm not good at this. I just watch enough TV. Yeah. Right. Assume that I was like, I was like, well, that's really descriptive of is exactly how it would go down. <laughs> do I do I need to know something here, Joe? <laughs> no, but um, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah. So like, I don't know.
1: Uh final theory that um people have mentioned uh and this also comes from just the internet um that. Keith may have planned his uh, own disappearance because uh, his unsuccessful antique business, his novel was not shaping up. He, you know, he couldn't finish it. Um, He had told several people that he would hike the mountain, even though he was still afraid of heights. Um, And then some interesting footnotes. Uh, He told several people shortly before his disappearance that he wanted to visit West Virginia. So, Um, that's a very interesting fact that we always, this always one theory, like, did they want to disappear? Um, yeah,
0: we don't talk about that enough, but I I think there's some real credence to that of, especially, I I think it's almost crazy how this team had like a perfect record of rescue, except for this one. Yeah. That doesn't mean they can't miss one. I think it's more abnormal that they haven't ever Mm -hmm. missed one in this area, but yeah, that does, it, it could be the whole, like he. I mean, he moved to a small town to do something. So he already had something going on where he felt like he needed a big change. Yeah. So he moves to this small town, doesn't know what he wants to write about, uh, decides, I'm going to write about this guy because I happened to put my store in his store, and he became obsessed with that story. He's got writer's blocks. He's going to try and climb the mountain. Maybe he did. Maybe he's just like, you know what? screw this. I'm going to go start a whole new life somewhere else.
1: Well, and yeah, one interesting theory, too, around wanting to disappear was that maybe – Once he found out that one of the search planes had crashed and someone died, that kind of was the final nail. Like, all right, I have to go. I'm going to Uh, disappear. I can't face the shame that I I went out here, and I made all these people come out here and search me, and then someone actually died searching for me. Like, there's no way I I can walk out and say I was.
0: Maybe it was more of a PR stunt. Maybe I'm writing this book about missing. I go missing. I'm writing this book. And then maybe he finishes the book and comes out, but now people physically died looking for him. So it's like, okay, whole idea off. Go make a new life somewhere.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, that's. Uh, I think uh, that was one. That's theory. a Hollywood theory, but I think it's a
0: it's a good one.
1: And I think back in the '80s, I think you could probably still pull that off. Sure. I don't know if you could do that today. Yeah, it's with like technology with the and digital stuff, the digital age. But I think in the '80s, you probably could still pull that off, and. Uh, you know, maybe he went to West Virginia. Maybe he left, went to Mexico. I mean, who knows what he did. He's still
0: alive, and he's going to be listening to this podcast today.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, so finally, just to wrap it up, uh, Ted Parker, Keith's friend from there, uh, his theory is that Keith is still on the mountain somewhere and that he simply fell and succumbed to his injuries or exposure. So um, I, I put a lot of weight on that theory because yep. Ted is from there. He knew Keith. Um, so I think this is a real interesting case just in the fact that you had two people go missing in similar circumstances and you have a really experienced search team that had never n- not found someone and didn- didn't find them. Ballistics don't match. Uh, you know, it was just, is strange. Um, but, you know, yeah, maybe 5'10". I'm, I'm, st- I'm
0: sticking with my original theory.
1: <laughs> I, th- I, yeah, I think, I think number one theory for me is he was unprepared Hiked it at the wrong time of the day and fell and died. I think a strong second is maybe some kind of foul play I couldn't i, I would
0: almost put he dis- disappeared maybe second I would say, yeah, I would say it's more likely he ran off, okay as second, just you changed my mind <laughs> just, just by looking at you. I saw you change your mind. it was like, ah, you're like, okay yeah, that one, yeah, so I think yeah,
1: he intended to disappear number two, and I think especially after he found out someone died while searching for him.
0: Yeah, that would be... And if that's the case, too, you would hope maybe on his deathbed he'll reveal it or something and we'll Mm -hmm. get more information. Other than that, that's where I'd say I'm 90% he died up on the mountain.
1: I mean, theoretically, maybe he never even hiked the mountain.
0: Oh, yeah. No gear. Yeah, I said, hey, I'm going there.
1: I'm going to hike this mountain.
0: So, yeah, even someone... So, it's not like he... Drove to Colorado into the mountain. He lived there. So he should mm-hmm. know a little bit about, and anyone who lived he hiked, there. He
1: hiked. He did a lot of day hiking. So it's so, not like he was totally inexperienced in well, the and, mountains. Well, and
0: here's the deal too. Anyone that lives there would tell you, no, you don't start a mountain hike at five o'clock at dinner.
1: Yeah. And, so, you know, maybe, I mean. You
0: get like, you're, you're like pulling my percentage down of that he actually I went. just
1: can't <laughs> comprehend if, if you live in the mountains and you've done a little hiking before you, that you would go to try to summon a mountain with no gear. At this late in the day, like I'm, I'm starting to change my mind again. Maybe, (laughs) maybe he told everyone he was going to go hike this mountain and do all this stuff and then just never did it and just disappeared.
0: Yeah. I would like to look, I was looking a little bit. I couldn't see if they like found his car there Mm -hmm. or yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Or did Tom start his hike at that time?
1: Yeah, I don't know that either.
0: Yeah, so that would be interesting information to find out. There's not a lot of
1: information at yeah, Tom. If, if like,
0: Tom left at 5.30 and he's like, I'm going to go hike at 5.30, he's like, okay, he's retracing his steps. And then I'd go back to, mm. well, that was just a dumb move, and he, paid the, the, he suffered the consequences of it. But, okay, yeah. I can see why this has gotten so much attention because it, it <laughs> seems like it should be super clear cut and it just – no, there's like little, little, little pieces and inklings in there that that draw you back. And even even though I theories.
1: I did the research on this episode and just reading it out loud, I've already changed what I originally had thought <laughs> happened to him. So, um, yeah, I got nothing else, Joe. What
0: about you? <laughs> That's it. I I want to hear any of your theories. Uh, but thanks again for tuning in the show. We appreciate all of you for listening and sharing locations I know with your friends and family. Be sure to like and follow us on Facebook. We're over like 18,000 now. We're like approaching 20,000 people. Yeah. So that is helping us get Patreon supporters. It's helping us get the word out about our show. So we can't thank you enough, and it's free to do. So go ahead and do it. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, uh, and on YouTube. We hopefully in this one will have actual video to go with the audio. So if you want to watch the show, uh, we'll have that on YouTube coming up. And you can subscribe there as well. We're getting close to a 1,000 subscribers, so that will help us by monetizing the show and our video content. Mm-hmm. Uh, outside of all of those things, if you do want to support us, you can visit our Facebook store. We have cool hats. <laughs> we, we have them on display. I got my mug out and everything, even my, my sticker on the back of my phone. <laughs> so and what's cool is right here will be a big wall vinyl. So yeah. we're getting this thing put together. It's going to look more and more professional each time.
1: Just got to get some air conditioning up here. It's hot.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yes, it is. You got to get airflow and air conditioning. Yes. Um, So, yeah, you can get Swag off the Facebook store. Uh, Outside of that, you can donate on Patreon, where we have exclusive Patreon content. Outside of the one episode we posted live, just to to give a little taste of the type of stuff we do, there's, what, 13, 14 other episodes that are on there. Uh, It ranges from us uh, just doing reactions to comments to actual cases. Yeah, sometimes,
1: yeah, we'll talk about... um newer cases that are still unfolding that we don't have
0: a lot of data for yet. Uh, so. Yeah. And we'll be doing our, our Patreon uh, zoom call. One pretty of much after this. So. One of
1: two. So if you hear this, I think we're going to do another one uh, after the 4th of July for all of the other supporters that couldn't make it. Cause it was kind of short notice with this first one.
0: Yep. So, and outside of that, yep. Pay attention to that. If you sign up for Patreon, you'll get the other dates And just remember when enjoying the beauty of nature, whether backpacking, camping, or just taking a walk, always remember to leave no trace. Thanks, and we will see you all next time.